On the morning of December 14, 2012, Nancy Lanza was shot to death while lying in her bed. While neighbors heard the gunshots, no one knew that the mother of two lay lifeless in her Newtown, Connecticut home. Shortly thereafter, Nancy's 20-year-old son, Adam Lanza, parked his car next to a no-parking zone outside of Sandy Hook Elementary School, a school he had attended as a child. Although the front doors of the school were locked, Lanza shot his way in through a nearby window. School staff, who were in the morning meeting, came out into the hallway to see what was happening. The school psychologist, Mary Sherlock, and the principal, Don Hochsprung, were shot and killed. A third staff member was shot in the leg but survived. A fourth staff member, who was further down the hall, was shot in the foot but then was able to escape into a nearby classroom. Lanza then went into the school's main office where the staff were hiding. He walked around and then left the office again, firing his weapon in the hallway. Lanza then went into first grade classrooms 8 and 10, where he proceeded to kill four adults and 20 children with a Bushmaster rifle. In classroom 10, Lanza committed suicide by shooting himself in the head with a Glock 10mm pistol. During the attacks, staff and students hid themselves in their classrooms. Some were able to escape out of the building. At least three staff called 911 during the shooting. Police arrived less than four minutes from the time they received the first call, and the entire attack at Sandy Hook Elementary lasted only five minutes. After the attacks, police went to Nancy Lanza's house, where they found her dead, the rifle used to kill her, next to the bed. As the police searched the remainder of the Lanza home, they found Adam Lanza's bedroom, where the windows had been covered with black trash bags. A computer hard drive, which appeared to have been intentionally destroyed, was found on the floor. Also located in the home were numerous firearms, all legally purchased by Nancy Lanza. Adam Lanza was born on April 22, 1992, to Peter and Nancy. He had one older brother. His father noted he had difficulties as a child, as he did not speak until he was three years old. He was hypersensitive to physical touch and had difficulty understanding emotion. However, despite these difficulties, he was also normal in many respects. He enjoyed playing with his father, he loved school, and he played the saxophone. When Adam was in fifth grade, he and a schoolmate wrote the Big Book of Granny, which was a story depicting violence and included a character who enjoyed hurting children. He attempted to sell the book at school and got in trouble. A few years later, a teacher expressed concern that Adam's writing contained violent themes. Adam's parents separated in 2001. After their separation, Adam and his brother continued to live with their mother and the boys continued to have frequent contact with their father. Peter Lanza, Adam's father, indicated he and Adam would play video games and go hiking together. But once Adam turned 18, he began responding less and less to his father's efforts to contact him. He stopped answering his father's calls and would only respond to him via email. In December 2012, he cut off all communication with his father. Adam's relationship with his brother also deteriorated over time. Their contact became less frequent when his brother moved out of state to attend college, and in 2010, Adam cut off all contact with his brother as well. Those who knew Adam Lanza provided differing stories about his social relationships. Some reported he was bullied at school, others said that he was not. Some said he had friends, laughed, smiled, and made jokes, while others described him as an awkward loner. 
It appeared that his behavior became more odd and rigid as he got older. Lanza was reported to have sensory integration problems. Psychological evaluations from his childhood indicated he had speech and language problems and that he engaged in repetitive behaviors, had temper tantrums, washed his hands excessively, and smelled odors which were not really there. In 2005, Lanza was diagnosed with Asperger's disorder and was noted as having significant anxiety and impairments in social functioning. In 2006, another evaluation indicated his IQ was in the average range and he did not have any learning disabilities. Again, he was noted to have Asperger's disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder, extreme anxiety, and sensory issues. Despite his lack of intellectual impairments, his social difficulties, anxiety, and sensory problems resulted in functional difficulties. Nancy Lanza ended up taking care of all of her son's needs. She told others she did not work because of her son's problems. Some felt she enabled him and did not encourage him to do the things that were within his ability. Law enforcement interviewed several individuals in hopes of determining a motive for the shootings. However, no one had an explanation. Police also reviewed Lanza's electronic communications. They found he had a preoccupation with Columbine and other mass shootings, as well as a strong interest in firearms. And while he enjoyed emailing with others who were also interested in mass shootings, nothing in his email suggested he had any intention of committing a mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School or anywhere else. However, the information on the destroyed hard drive was never recovered, and Lanza told others he frequently reformatted his computer so people could not trace his internet activity. One month prior to the attack, Nancy Lanza had informed others she was concerned about her son as he had not left the home in three months. He had stopped speaking to her and would only respond to her via email, even though they lived in the same home. She was not allowed in his room. When she asked him if he would feel bad if anything happened to her, he simply replied, no. This episode is about the Sandy Hook shooting. Hello and welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono and Dr. David Morelos. And David, today we have a very special interview with Dr. Heather Morris, who's an expert on mass shootings. And this is a topic that we have gotten so many requests to talk about because it's something that unfortunately happens 
far too frequently in our society. And, you know, we had been putting off this topic because Dr. Morris is a very good friend of ours, and she really is one of the national experts on mass shootings. Yeah, we know somebody personally who really, really knows a lot about this particular topic. Yeah, so let me introduce Dr. Morris. She is an active duty military psychologist currently assigned to the Department of the Air Force Special Investigations Behavioral Science Directorate in Quantico, Virginia. She's a board-certified clinical psychologist with a background in forensic psychology. She has experience treating and evaluating criminal offenders and worked at a police psychology firm where she consulted with schools, universities, and workplaces on insider and outsider threats, conducted violence threat assessments, and has extensively researched critical incidences involving active shooters. She entered the United States Air Force in April 2013 as a captain and promoted to the rank of major in 2018. Dr. Morris also co-authored the book chapter entitled Kinetic Insider Violence and Mass Shootings in the third edition of Violence Goes to College, The Authoritative Guide to Prevention, Intervention, and Response in 2018. Dr. Morris recently obtained the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals Certification in Threat Management and is currently working on developing OSI's Behavioral Threat Assessment and Management Team. I've known Dr. Morris since 2002 when we studied forensic psychology together at the University of Denver, and she is one of the most knowledgeable people I know when it comes to mass shootings, as I said. So a huge thank you to Dr. Morris for joining us, and let's get to the interview. Sounds good. So Dr. Morris, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's so good to be with you guys today. I love the podcast. And before I get started and and talk about all this interesting stuff, I got to do the typical Air Force disclaimer. So um, basically, anything that I discuss today reflects my personal and professional experience um, and does not necessarily represent the view of the Department of the Air Force or the Office of Special Investigations. Okay, well, thank you very much. Um, So... Uh, Dr. Morris, I guess what we wanted to start out with was asking you, how did you get into researching mass shooters? So back in the late 1990s, I was in college and I was taking my very first forensic psychology course and, and Columbine happened. So I was already studying the psychology of violence and criminal behavior and Columbine happens. And I was just immediately fascinated by what on earth can make somebody do something so horrendous. Uh, and more importantly than trying to figure out what would cause this is what what are the things that we can do in psychology to help prevent something like this from happening in the future. So that's how I got interested. And that's what drove me to kind of look for a forensic psychology graduate program. Ultimately, I moved to Denver, Colorado. I got into graduate school for forensic psychology and very soon after started working with uh, a police psychologist who had responded to the Columbine shooting and who was an expert in threat assessment back then. So that's how I got my start. And I know that when you and I have spoken about mass shootings such as Sandy Hook or Columbine, um, one of the terms that you've used is the term Avenger. And I was wondering if you could explain what that means. Sure. So Avenger violence is defined by a perpetrator who considers violence 
as a, the only possible recourse for a perceived injustice. And it's really a slang term that was coined by John Nicoletti, and it's a, a term that I had used in the early to mid-2000s, and it's a subset of what we call targeted violence. So targeted violence is defined by a type of premeditated violence where the perpetrator identifies a specific target prior to their act of violence. So adventure violence is really a subset of targeted violence. And for those listeners out there that are interested in researching it, that they'll probably get more luck with targeted violence. It's the more well-known term out there. So did Adam Lanza meet this definition? Yeah, I think so. So if you look at the Adam Lanza case, um, he clearly had a perceived injustice with society in general. Um, In some of these cases, what you'll find is they won't have a particular person. In some cases they do, but a lot of times they're just kind of pissed off at society in general or they have a hostility towards women. And in Lanza's case, if you look at his writings, his online postings, he very clearly had a grievance against society in general. Uh, He talked quite a bit about cultural norms and was very angry uh, and vengeful towards the the people who were able to go through society in a quote-unquote normal way. So he, he had this perceived injustice against society in general. So do you think that in general are the perpetrators of targeted violence mentally ill? So that's a great question. The answer is no. Uh, Most people do assume that if if you're going to go into a public place or a school and kill a bunch of people, you must be crazy. But despite popular belief, the majority of these cases, they do not have a serious mental illness. In fact, the FBI did some research and found only about 25% of Avenger violence or targeted violent perpetrators actually had evidence of a serious mental illness. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. And and Lanza clearly did have a serious mental illness. However, it's not necessarily the mental illness that is the antecedent to the violence. If you look at Lanza's case, um, yes, he had uh, some severe and largely untreated social and emotional challenges. He had a profound and worsening social isolation and possibly was psychotic. But if you look at what the issue was with Lanza, it wasn't his mental illness. It was the fact that he was obsessively fascinated with violence and had been for a long time. This guy wrote about murdering his mother when he was in the fifth grade. And if you look back on his online footprints, you will find that not only was he fascinated with violence, he was fascinated with violence against children specifically, In addition, he had this admiration for mass murderers, not to mention he had unfettered access to a large arsenal of weapons. So if you look at the Lance case, yes, he had a mental illness, but that's not necessarily what was the the problem or the issue. It was his fascination with violence that was the issue. It was the issue of him having access to really any kind of weapon that he wanted. And those are the things that we look for. When a young man is obsessed with violence and looks at people like the Columbine shooters in admiration, that's a problem. That is not normal behavior. And so do we know why he chose that school, why he chose little kids in particular? So there's a a lot of hypotheses out there about why he possibly could have chose that particular school or that particular age in, in children. 
And he actually went to that school back when he was younger, but those were said to be his best years. Now, we do know that um, he did have a fascination with violence. He, he did talk and advocate for violence against children at, at different points in his online footprint. But probably um, the, the hypothesis that seems to make most sense for me was that Lanza was a very physically weak and an emotionally vulnerable person. And he really, really wanted to be this macho, masculine, military type guy. And the thinking is that he, he was aware of his struggles and he was aware of his weaknesses. And perhaps the only population that he felt that he could overpower is first graders. Uh, he did extensive research on other mass murderers. And he certainly would know that if he had chosen an older population, that older population would have likely have fought back. So, so that's one of the possibilities uh, as to why he chose such a young population. And, and also the other one that, that kind of makes sense to me is the fact that he was so angry with culture uh, and typical social norms, and he really had this hostility towards people who could go through society in a normal way. And he really thought the educational system was kind of the illustration of this. And so to, to do a school shooting with such a young population was essentially his ultimate act to try to show the world how significant he really was, how alpha male he really was by shooting the most vulnerable of our population. You know, I remember very vividly where I was and what I was doing when Columbine happened. I was in college. I was coming home from class, turned on the radio, um, driving home from Boulder, just to Broomfield, which is very close, you know, and everybody, everybody was talking about Columbine. And there's no question that that was a game changer. But this particular case, this one um, really, really bothers me because it almost ups the ante significantly. Mm -hmm. He went after the single most vulnerable population that I could think of. I, I, I mean, I don't think there is a more vulnerable population than little kids. And I guess that that's why this particular case really bothers me. I mean, all of them bother me. There's no question. But this one mm -hmm. really bothers me. And so that's an, a very fascinating explanation for that. Yeah, he, um, again, if you look on his online world, he also advocated for uh, pedophilia to be legal. He, he, he didn't think that there should be an age of consent. So he really had a lot of interesting views in the world that did have this fixation on children, whether it was the sexual view um, or whether it was violence. But again, he was writing about violence against children as early as 10 years before he actually ended up walking into school that day and killing all of those first graders. And I think that's an important point because oftentimes on the news, you'll hear people say that, you know, this came out of nowhere or the person just snapped. And that's not the case, right? I mean, people don't just all of a sudden one day engage in violence like this. Yeah, that's right. What you're speaking of is, is no, uh, another one of those myths that, that's out there that um, these are things where somebody 
just snaps and they decide to go on a killing spree. And that's not true at all. What we, we, what we know about targeted violence is that targeted violence is a premeditated type of violence. It's not an impulsive type of violence. There are types of violence out there that are kind of impulsive and effective violence. Targeted violence is not one of those. And there's really three main fundament, uh, fundamental principles that I think are important for your listeners to understand. That first one is that targeted violence is the end result of an understandable process. You know, years ago, back when Columbine happened, we didn't quite understand what's going on. Fast forward two decades, we have a lot of research now that we can look at, and we've learned quite a bit. And what we've learned is that targeted violence is a premeditated type of violence, and it's an understandable process. The second main fundamental point about targeted violence is it's not just one factor. It's an interaction between several different factors, individual factors, social factors, contextual, environmental, and it's the interaction between those factors, not just one specific factor. The third fundamental principle about targeted violence is that all of these things are observable to other people. So this understandable process, these factors that, that have this interaction, People can see these in, in, the, in the form of warning behaviors, uh, pre-attack indicators. And so targeted violence is something that is planned and prepared for often years before the final act of violence. So these types of shootings, are they increasing? I mean, I feel like when you see the news, it, it feels like these things are happening more and more frequently. Is that actually the case? Yeah, actually, uh, that, that is true. It is where we've started to see an increase. And if you just take the last couple of years, in 2016, there were over 382 of these types of violence, public attacks uh, or, or shootings in schools and workplaces. In 2017, there was 346. 2018, we averaged one a day. In 2019, and this was early December, we had over 370 already in that year alone. So we are seeing an increase in this type of violence. Wow, okay. Do you have any theories about that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of different theories out there. The internet is, is a big one. If you look at Columbine and you look at the increase we have seen since then, one thing that is, is changed in our society is, is the internet. And you basically can go on the internet and find any kind of chat room for any kind of hate-filled ideology that you can fathom. And you will find an instant room full of, uh, full of people who agree with you, who will reinforce your violent ideology and encourage you to do something about it. So the internet is certainly one way that this type of ideology is being reinforced and maintained. The other one is our current political climate. So we're very divisive right now. and We have a lot of hateful ideologies up there that are being normalized and they're not being immediately uh, repudiated from people uh, in the top of our culture. And that's that's, that's a big issue. And then in general, our society, we're really struggling with toxic masculinity right now. And if you look at a lot of these shootings, the, the core of toxic masculinity is, is right there at the heart of this type of violence. So can you expand a little bit on that about what your definition of toxic masculinity is? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of different terms out there, but kind of a just a general term would be 
you know, any of the traditional traits of men that are deemed detrimental to society, such as the devaluation of women, uh, the desire for dominance, or the use of aggression to achieve status, kind of the avoidance of appearing weak, um, homophobia, the suppression of emotion, those are some of the typical uh, what we would call traditional masculinity traits that are that are essentially toxic. And if you look at a lot of the kind of mass shooters, whether we're talking about workplace violence or school shootings, we see these these ideologies that are very much in line with toxic masculinity, and that a lot of them are turning towards guns and violence as the great equalizer. And, you know, unfortunately, in the Avengers kind of twisted schema of the world, they're choosing to use mass violence to, to show the world how significant they really are. But Ultimately, it's a cowardly act that really illustrates the extreme insecurity of a disturbed individual. I would just want to zoom out for a second and, and look at this in the context of our culture. And it mm -hmm. seems like, you know, and what, what you call toxic masculinity, I would call, um, you know, shadow or dark masculinity or something like that in terms of the, the psychological terms that I would use. It seems like, okay, so this has always been around this has always been a part of our history this has always been a part of our culture but recently the way it's been expressing itself i guess is what really seems to be at play here you know this is the big question so that seems to be where i guess like elements from culture like the internet like you were referring to sort mm -hmm. of really come into play because it doesn't seem like and and there is also this idea that this is also partly a reaction to the changes that have occurred in terms of the balance of power. Mm -hmm. you know? and, and it's sort of like, there's like a big freak out um, going on about the fact that other people are becoming more empowered. Mm -hmm. And typically the ones, those in power see that as a threat. And that maybe this is some kind of violent reaction, you know, culturally speaking. Mm -hmm. and the, the, you know, these types of killers, these Avenger killers would be the most extreme example of that. Yeah, I have to agree with you, David. I mean, basically, these individuals feel insignificant. And in order to make themselves powerful or famous, they, they choose kind of the most masculine way to do that, which is through violence. And I absolutely think that you're spot on to the fact that it's in response to the perception that other people achieving equality or power somehow is a threat to them. That's absolutely part of what's going on. So Heather, you talked about the fact that, that these acts are planned over significant periods of time, that there are a lot of risk factors or, or red flags or warning signs that are present. Has law enforcement become better able to predict and interrupt these types of violence? Um, yes, and I say that with a little hesitancy because you'll see uh, differences between different departments at the local level, but by and large, what we're seeing is a shift in the law enforcement culture where essentially everybody's trying to get left of boom. You see a lot of local law enforcement as well as federal and state law enforcement really take on the threat assessment approach. And the threat assessment approach was developed by the U.S. Secret Service in the mid-90s to address assassinations. 
And then as school shootings started to happen, um, they applied it in those scenarios and realized that the threat assessment approach is our best way to prevent these types of things from happening. And it works. I can tell you from personal experience, there are more examples of what we would call successful interruptions utilizing the threat assessment approach than there are actual mass shootings. And there's even an act in Congress right now called the TAPS Act. That's the Threat Assessment Prevention and Safety Act of 2019. It's the one act that actually has bipartisan support actually right now. And that act it gives funding to local areas, local police departments, um, the ability to formulate threat assessment teams. And threat assessment teams are formed by folks who have experience in threat assessment and can pull together a multidisciplinary group of people to look at these cases individually and look at the risk factors and warning behaviors and come up with mitigation and management strategies to try to prevent the individual from becoming violent. Well, that's encouraging. So we do know that law enforcement has a good strategy for interrupting these events. And so, you know, I'm wondering, are there other things that organizations or governments or workplaces can implement to help to prevent these types of occurrences? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would encourage really any business, any organization, or any local law enforcement that, that has not yet developed threat assessment to contact their local ATAP chapter. Now, ATAP stands for the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals. That's the national organization for threat assessment professionals, and it's kind of a it's a law enforcement and psychology type professional organization, and there's local chapters all over. And so if there's an organization or a business that's interested in setting up a threat assessment program at their organization or business, they can contact the ATAP local chapter, and somebody will certainly help them kind of understand what they need to do to set up a threat assessment program. Do you know, do a lot of schools, universities already have something like that in place? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of them do, not all of them, but it's becoming more and more commonplace for universities and schools to have a threat assessment team and a threat assessment program organized and developed so that when they come across these types of situations, they're prepared to handle them. So, so getting back to um, what you had said about Adam Lanza and the mental health component and some of the mental health issues that he had going on, I thought that that was fascinating, that you could sort of have these two things side by side. What I think is important about that, and I know that Jessica and I have mentioned this on the podcast a, a number of times, but that the stigma that surrounds mental health is already, or people with mental health issues is already a problem. To be able to say like, look, this guy did have mental health issues, but we're pretty sure that that was completely separate from what really drove him into this act of violence, I think is fascinating because I wouldn't have said that. I would have been like, of course, his mental illness was part of it. Mm -hmm. and maybe he was one of those very few cases, you know, mm -hmm. where his psychosis or whatever contributed to this act of violence. But I think it's very interesting and fascinating to hear that, you know, you don't, you don't think that that was the case. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing that is confusing, not only just to, to normal lay people, but I think confusing as for psychologists, a lot of psychologists don't understand what's going on when, when you take mental illness and mass murder. And one thing that's getting missed is personality disorders. Now, 
it is not a mental illness to be violent or have hateful ideology. That's a problematic personality characteristic. And major mental illness is not the same thing as having a problematic personality or having a personality disorder. And if you take a lot of these cases or these individuals who commit mass murder, even the ones that do have a serious mental illness, if you look deeper, they also had a personality disorder or they had certainly problematic personalities in terms of lack of empathy, grandiosity, callousness, paranoia, and extreme hatred towards other folks. That is not a part of any major mental illness. That is a part of a problematic personality. And so what you're typically seeing are these folks that maybe do have a mental illness, but they also have a co-occurring personality disorder. It's the problematic personality that leads them down a path of violence. And it's also the main reason why treatment hasn't been successful. If you look at Adam Lanza, um, he clearly had lots of different possible diagnosis throughout his childhood and young adulthood. His mother would take him in to get evaluated, but he was very resistant to treatment. And it was because of his personality characteristics, not the mental illness, that was a problem there in terms of his inability to accept treatment uh, suggestions. But again, this fascination with violence is more about a personality structure and not the mental illness. And that is what the issue was here, was a fixation and obsession with violence and with guns. And there's nothing in the DSM that classifies that as a major mental illness. But if you look at personality disorders, you'll find that especially access to cluster B, the, the old terminology, you look at those personality disorders and you start reading off what those traits are. And they're gonna remind you, not of Adam Lanza specifically, but also of a lot of other folks who commit mass murder. Uh, so Heather, you said that, that we can identify certain risk factors and warning behaviors. So what would be some examples of those? Absolutely. So I, I think it's first important to d distinguish between a risk factor and a warning behavior. So your risk factors are going to be those things that are really risk factors for a lot of different things. And they include having lots of stressors in your life, having a mental illness, again, as a risk factor, not necessarily a warning behavior, but anything that uh, makes you vulnerable to criminal behavior or social isolation, those are going to be your risk factors. Now, your warning behaviors, those are indicators that are specifically related to targeted violence. So again, just to list off the, the risk factors, you know, if you have a history of violence or criminal behavior, that's obviously a risk factor. Uh, if you have a lot of stressors going on, if there's suicide ideations in, your, in, in the individual's past, that's also a risk factor. Mental illness is a vulnerability, exposure to violence, substance abuse or dependence, like a number of things that can be a risk factor for uh, targeted violence as well. We had mentioned personality disturbance or disorder. That's a big risk factor. Any kind of uh, intimate partner violence is a risk factor for targeted violence. Access to weapons, any kind of history of stalking or harassment, history of threat making, any kind of negative family or social dynamics, a basic history of non-compliance with rules and laws. If this is a person who just kind of does what they want when they want it, that's a risk factor. Any kind of social uh, or emotional isolation, 
any kind of behavior that causes what we call social disruption or psychological disruption. Social disruption is any behavior that negatively impacts the normal day-to-day -day routines or operations. And psychological disruption is causing fear or concern in other people. So those would be some of the, the, the risk factors for targeted violence. Now again, the warning behaviors or pre-attack indicators, this is going to be when there's evidence of a grievance or a perceived injustice. When the person has a grievance against a identified person, a group of people, or an organization, that's a warning behavior. Violent ideation. So if the person has a affinity for violence or believes that violence is justified, that's warning behavior. Any kind of research or planning behavior, if you look at Adam Lanza, he had one of the most impressive databases of mass murder research I have ever seen. So that kind of research and planning behavior is a definite, definite warning behavior for targeted violence. Any kind of preparation behavior, if they're rehearsing the violent act, they're acquiring more weapons or ammo, they're getting ready or preparing for a violent act is a warning behavior. Any kind of practice boundary or, or breach behavior where they're kind of approaching the target or testing boundaries is a warning behavior. Fixation, if they are negatively fixated on what their grievance is, or in Lanz's case, he was just fixated against violence against children. That's, uh, that's not normal behavior. That's a warning behavior. And probably one of the most important warning behaviors that we see and folks who go on to commit targeted violence is identification with other mass murderers. Again, if somebody admires somebody who has done something as heinous as going into a school and shooting up people, that's a warning behavior for targeted violence. And um, leakage, direct threats. Leakage is basically where the individual talks about violence or kind of, it's kind of like a veiled threat. So if anybody's online or talking with somebody who says something to the effect of, I wouldn't go to school tomorrow, or hey, I want to become the next school shooter, those are things that people should take more seriously because they're indication that the person is seriously considering a targeted violent act. And then any kind of evidence of writing a manifesto, we see that in a lot of the cases where people will write a manifesto or online postings that, that really signal that they are on the brink of doing something uh, major like a school shooting. Those things should be taken very, very seriously. Um, so those are just some of the warning behaviors and risk factors that we typically see with targeted violence. So let's say that someone is seeing a lot of these warning behaviors and they're concerned. Um, what should they do? Absolutely. So the most important thing is if you're concerned about somebody's behavior, whether it's what they're saying or what they're posting online, or you become concerned uh, because of the way that they're acting at work or in the school, then you should go to that particular school or workplace and report that behavior. A lot of workplaces, a lot of schools have a reporting mechanism where you can report concerning behavior. And you can always ask that organization if they have a threat assessment team. And so my first, I would encourage people to first report it to a, that workplace or that school place. 
If that particular person does not belong to anybody, then you want to go to your local law enforcement, explain the situation, and just be very, you know, give examples of why you feel concerned about that, that particular person. And hopefully that particular law enforcement entity has a threat assessment capability and can enact the threat, enact the threat assessment team to do an assessment to determine how dangerous this individual is and what mitigation and management strategies they can use in this particular situation. So, so that's my next question. Um, in terms of that, it seems like, and it's just like you said, 20 years uh, on from Columbine, there's been a lot of advances in how we look at this and assess people, you know, to try to predict these kinds of violent behaviors. But what mm -hmm. is, is most interesting to me, or I guess not interesting, but what seems problematic to me, you know, we could start to predict these types of behaviors, but whether or not we actually have authority or that the policies that are in place actually have teeth to really do anything about it. Because I mean, at some point, and just to play devil's advocate, we have to say, okay, people are, there are weird people out there, you know, people that we mm -hmm. consider weird, people who act weird, do weird things, eccentric. You know, and then there are people who have lots of guns. That's a huge hotbed issue in this country, obviously. You know, so I mean, so we throw these things in together and we have somebody who's eccentric and then we have somebody who, and they own a lot of guns because they're allowed to, right? There's so many, there's so many ways it says, okay, yes, we know this person's going to probably display some form of imminent violence, but yet there's really nothing we can do about it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you raise a good point. And threat assessment is about balancing that constitutional individual right that we all have and balancing that with the right that society has to live in a safe, safe environment. And, and the one thing that, that we need to focus on is threat assessment is not about prediction of violence. We're not here to predict whether an individual will be violent. It's about prevention. It's about identifying those risk factors and warning behaviors and mitigating them early enough in the progression to where we don't necessarily have to just yank someone out and put them in jail. So a lot of times these individuals get identified early enough on the pathway to violence to where the workplace or the school, for example, can mitigate and manage it before it gets to the point where violence is going to occur. Now, a lot of people also have to remember that when people start engaging in behaviors that are causing people concern for violence, a lot of times that is crossing a line, a legal line, to where there can be more legal action. If somebody is stalking somebody or if somebody threatens another person, that's crossing a line and you can utilize laws to help combat that. But a lot of what threat assessment is, is getting in way left of bang and identifying these people before you get to that point. And it is very difficult when you're concerned about someone and they happen to have lots of weapons. And so that's why every situation is very different than the next one. And those are things that you have to consider. And in some cases, we have states that have red flag laws where you can have an expert and a judge have to agree that, yes, this person is a danger to other people before the Second Amendment rights can be infringed upon for a limited amount of time to get that person the help that they need. So some, some cases are easier 
than others. Sometimes it's very difficult, but in the end, it's all about that balance between individual rights and society rights. So you had stated earlier, and, and I thought that was interesting, that you had also stated that there, for every instance of this kind of violence, you said there were actually a number more that had been prevented through this sort of threat assessment system. Yes. And I guess, I guess that's the issue, right? Because we don't hear about those. We only hear about it when somebody actually goes through right, with an act of violence. that's a very violence. good point. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I do. Uh, that's my job right now is um, I... I help run the OSI threat assessment unit where every day I get calls of individuals um, who are engaging in these warning behaviors and I help my agents develop plans with command on how to mitigate and manage those situations. Most of those cases are on the um, early ends of the uh, pathway to violence, but in some cases, uh, you will you will hear stories about people who were arrested and they had um, you know 15 long guns in their car with body armor you know with a journal of a death list of people that they want to kill. Those stories from time to time will be posted on the news, but for the most part, you don't hear about those success cases. But I can tell you, they're happening every day where somebody has been. Uh, identified because someone picked up the phone and said, hey, I'm worried about this person because of X, Y, and Z. Law enforcement gets involved and in the investigation, they find a manifesto, lots of weapons, uh, and things to that uh, effect. But you're absolutely right. You don't hear about those cases on the news very often. Yeah, it's, it's like th this is a very successful and it seems like, you know, productive way of going about this type of prevention. And yet, and, and that's, isn't that funny? Isn't that like the media though? You know what I mean? So when something works really well, it just sort of- They don't report quiet. it. Yeah, it just, right. they don't report it. It just runs quietly in the background. And it's when something goes terribly wrong that we actually really hear about it. Well, that's yeah. why I'm so glad that you, you're here to speak with us today, because I think that that can help to give people a different viewpoint on this, that this is something that we are learning about and we are combating and law enforcement is doing a good job a lot of times in preventing this type of violence. Absolutely. And we're not going to stop every act of targeted violence. That's impossible. But what you are seeing, again, is a shift in law enforcement where it is becoming more and more commonplace for law enforcement to have education and threat assessment so that when a concerned citizen does call and say, hey, I'm concerned about, you know, my son who's engaging in these behaviors, then there is a protocol to follow and actions that will take place for that law enforcement entity to get involved before an actual crime has taken place. So Heather, if people are interested in learning more about this topic, about targeted violence, what are some resources? Absolutely. Well, I'll send you guys a link to the FBI's Making Prevention a Reality, Identifying, Assessing, and Managing the Threat of Targeted Attacks. That's a PDF that people can download for free. And it does a great job of explaining risk factors and warning behaviors. It also does a great job of how to set up a threat assessment team for organizations and businesses that are interested in doing so. It also talks about the mental illness myth that we talked about and kind of explains that a little bit further. So that's probably the first place I would send people is really to the FBI's Making Prevention a Reality. It's my go-to 
you know, PDF on this type of, of violence. I would also encourage people who are interested, whether they're students or just interested in this topic, to check out the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals. Um, you can find them at atapworldwide.org. They have a lot of great resources on their webpage. And then, of course, the Sandy Hook Promise, which you can find at www.sandyhookpromise.org, has a lot of great resources for the prevention of targeted violence and a lot of other great resources for anybody who's interested in this type of violence and, more importantly, interested in preventing it. Great, and we will have uh, links to all of those things on the discussion page of our website. So thank you so much, Dr. Morris, for joining us. It's been a real pleasure to, to talk with you, and, and I feel like I've learned a lot from today's episode. Yeah, me as well. There, there was definitely a lot of information in there that I did not know about Adam Lanza in particular, but also just about all the changes that have been occurring because of going back to Columbine, which was one the first one that I remember, how much that changed everything. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you again, Dr. Morris, and, and we will have links to all of that on our website. So we appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me, guys. It was a lot of fun. Bye. So David, that was really interesting to hear Dr. Morris's take not just on this case, but also about targeted violence in general. Yeah, I agree. That was fascinating. That, she's definitely the most knowledgeable person that I've ever met in terms of this. Likewise. And, you know, when Dr. Morris and I were preparing for this episode, we were remarking on how unfortunate it was that we had so many mass shootings to choose from. Yeah, that is, that's chilling. Yeah, it's, it's... It's sad. It's just very sad. And, you know, every single case is unfortunate. But this one for me was particularly difficult because the victims were innocent young children. And Dr. Morris talked about potential reasons why Lanza chose them. But it's still, it is just so hard to kind of wrap my brain around. Well, I would say that's what made it so disturbing was the victims that this guy went after. I think that that was the hardest thing to deal with about this particular story. I mean, obviously every shooting that happens in this country is a tragedy. There's no question. But this one in particular really chilled me to the bone. And I can only figure that the reason why that is, is because the nature of the victims involved. So, you know, what? one of the things that really interested me that Dr. Morris talked about a little bit was this sort of standalone between way that mental illness can sort of coexist alongside something much more sinister. And I think that's what one of the other parts about this case that I, I always thought was interesting was that there was a mental health component I, for one, never even considered that that could be something that was not a part of this, it, that it could be just something that was there, but really had nothing to do with this, you know, with the actual violence. And, you know, and that that does happen. That's when I'm doing insanity evaluations. That is kind of one of the areas that I'm looking at is if the person does have a mental illness, did it contribute significantly to their crime or did it impair their ability to understand what they were doing or what they were doing or understand what they were doing was wrong. And in this case, it seems pretty clear that Lanza's behavior was not related to any of the mental health disorders that he had been diagnosed with. 
that this was something that he thought out. He knew what he was doing. It was very calculated. And so, you know, it it really didn't appear that the mental illness played a major role in his decision to carry out this mass shooting. Yeah. Again, that's what is fascinating is that there can be a mental illness component within the perpetrator, but yet that mental illness really has no bearing on these other much darker sort of personality traits that lead to this kind of violence. I think that I always assumed that there was a connection there. It's just that we didn't know what it was. And then Dr. Morris sort of brought that up and said, no, actually, you know, these things can coexist without there being a connection between the two. And that still is just, I haven't been able to put it out of my head. It's very interesting to me. Well, and again, I think when we hear about things that are just this awful, it almost makes us feel better to think, oh, well, the person was just really mentally ill. You know, then we can kind of blame something. Right. Rather than, no, this person just chose to do this because he chose to do it. Well, the pop psychology definition, you know, when we say something like that, oh, this guy's crazy or he's mentally ill, you know, it it has a much broader meaning, I think, than it does in psychology. And that's one of the biggest misconceptions I I find that people who don't uh, study psychology really understand is that mental illness is very specific to psychologists and mental health professionals whereas personality issues are something that are sort of their own thing and they're completely different yeah and and i think that that's kind of come up in a few of our episodes where we've talked about that difference between personality traits personality disorders and other major mental health disorders such as schizophrenia or uh, delusional disorder or something like that. What was encouraging, and you know, we can sort of leave it on this high note, was what Dr. Morris said about how many of these have been prevented that we never hear about because the system is getting so much better. Absolutely. I think that was really very promising news. And, you know, I'm just so grateful for people like Dr. Morris who study this type of violence and hope that we can continue to become even better at preventing any sort of mass shootings in the future. I agree. I agree. I think we have a long way to go, but the work that's being done that she was talking about that I had no clue really about is very encouraging in that regard. So... Yeah, kudos to her and all the other people who do that tireless work. Yeah, I just wanted to thank Dr. Morris again for joining us. You know, she has so much insight into this topic, and it was really wonderful to have her. I feel very fortunate that we were able to interview her for an episode. We will have the links Dr. Morris mentioned on the discussion page of our website at psychologyafterdark.com. We'll also have a link to the Sandy Hook final report from the Office of the State's Attorney, as well as a link to the book, Violence Goes to College. That's the book that Dr. Morris co-authored one of the chapters of. Also, on the discussion page, we have a link to a webpage with all of the victims of Sandy Hook, and it has photos of them, it has their ages, it has a little biography about them. I know we did not list all of the victims by name in the introduction, but we wanted to make sure to honor them on our website, so please be sure to visit us there. Please also feel free to send us a message either from our website or on social media. We're at Psychology After Dark on both Facebook and Instagram, and you can also leave comments on our discussion page. Thank you again to everyone for listening and for your feedback. We've gotten some great suggestions for future episodes, and we hope to cover some of those ideas soon as well. And uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode. Thank you so much for joining us. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, 
and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskus, both provided by Jamendo. <laughs>